I'm Lindsay Morgan, and you're listening to Talking Policy. Around the world, democracy is being challenged as never before. As Americans gear up for the midterm elections, many are wondering how countries like the United States can safeguard the integrity of elections, encourage broad-based political participation, prevent violence, and ensure that independent media flourish. This fall, Talking Policy's series on democracy will welcome experts from across the University of California to consider the future of democracy. I don't hear outrage about the criminal aliens that have gotten through. The only thing I hear them getting upset about is you have 50 that end up in Martha's Vineyard. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida heard in this clip talking about his now infamous operation to fly Venezuelan migrants to the doorstep of Democrats in Martha's Vineyard is one of many Republican candidates for office who has made an effort to put migration on the ballot in November. What sorts of things shape what voters think about immigration? What effect do immigrants really have on the communities where they settle? And how are the politics of migration changing, both here in the U.S. and in other countries? As part of our series on the future of democracy, we're joined today by Maggie Peters, a political scientist at UCLA whose research focuses on the politics of migration. Maggie, welcome to Talking Policy. Great. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking you a question of context. Um, We often hear or read in the headlines, I should say, about surges of migrants at the U.S.-Mexican border. Politicians often frame the issue as if the U.S. faces an onslaught of migrants. How many immigrants actually arrive um, at the U.S. border in any given year? How is that changing in recent years? And how do we compare to other countries? Do we receive many, many more new arrivals than other countries or many less? Kind of where do we fall in the spectrum? Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of a complicated question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, because, well, many questions, but part of it is like, what do we mean by arrive at the U.S. border? So if we think, because, you know, millions and millions of foreigners come to our borders basically every day um, and every year. But most of those folks are coming for travel purposes. But in terms of actual numbers of people, we can split it up into different categories of thinking about who has who's coming with basically prior authorization and who's not coming with prior authorization. So in terms of people who come with prior authorization. So there are people who are legal permanent, come as legal permanent residents. These are your green card holders. There were about, um, last year there was about 230,000 new legal permanent residents who entered. There are also um, temporary workers who we often lump in as immigrants, but actually are counted by the U.S. government as non-immigrants because they don't have the ability to become citizens. So there was about 1,900,000-ish if we count temporary workers and add students and some other groups in. So almost 2 million people come a year for work or study. We also have people who are refugees who come, um, who are resettled. We only had about 11,000 refugees come last year, which is down quite a bit um, and way misses Biden's target 
number of, I think he was going to try and shoot for 120,000. And then we have people who come to the border who are, don't have pre-authorization to come to the border or aren't from a country where you're allowed to just like come in. Like, you know, if you're, if you're European, you can pretty much just come to the U.S. if you're coming to be a tourist. There are different numbers of how many people are actually coming to the border. And what's complicated is when the department, when Border Patrol catches somebody coming to the border or turns somebody away um, who has presented themselves who don't have prior authorization to come to the United States, they don't keep track of like the person's name (laughs) and who they are very well. And so we have these like huge numbers of uh, apprehensions at the border, like the largest number of apprehensions at the border. But people think these are mostly single mostly single men who are repeatedly trying to cross and then get sent back. And so we don't actually know the real number of people who like come to a border. So think about it. We allow in like almost 2 million temporary workers and then 17,000 people who came to the border were allowed in as asylum seekers. So much smaller numbers. You know, I've, I've heard numbers like 200,000 and stuff kicked around at the border. Um, But that is including a lot of these people who are coming over and over again. And I will have to say, like, the only way you stop having people come to the United States, like want to come is like, this like stop people in general is to make the the US a crappy place to live. (laughs) So like, you know, the countries that don't get a lot of people coming to their borders are places nobody wants to live. And so like, the sign that like lots of people want to come to the U.S. is not a sign that like we are doing something wrong. It's a sign we are doing something right. So the idea of the U.S. as an immigrant nation is a huge part of our identity. Um, we hear, you know, we describe ourselves as a melting pot, uh, these kinds of things. And immigrants have been found uh, to be good for the economy, for our economy, for the economies of the countries where they come from, for all kinds of reasons. But negative views towards migrants, towards immigrants are really pervasive and especially for or towards low wage migrants, which are sometimes called low skilled migrants. And I'm wondering if you can talk us through, you know, why do Americans oppose immigration? That's a blanket statement. I know it's more complicated than that. But what are the factors that drive this this opposition? Since the colonial era, there have been there has been opposition to immigration and the talking points are always the same. Like they take jobs, their fiscal drains, like they can use the welfare system, they bring crime, like all those things are always the same. So I think there's sort of two dynamics going on that overlap a lot. So one is concerns about others, like, and I'm going to use others instead of just like um, xenophobia or racism or things like that, because the way we've thought about who is the in-group in the United States has shifted over time. So it shifted from, you know, in the early 1800s, you know, it was just people of British descent. So that was like, who was the main in-group in the United States? And then it shifted to you start hearing narratives about like Anglo-Saxons and it's a like that's where you get white Anglo-Saxon Protestant as being like the in-group the wasp Um, comes in the later 1800s um, when various 
including, you know, economists and political scientists and other scholars start making up these like um, eugenicist views that like people in from Western, Northern and Western Europe are somehow better. And that's when you get like phrenology and all that like crazy stuff. Um, And then the in-group then shifted over time to include, you know, all people of um, European heritage, um, sort of in the early part of the 1900s um, through like, you know, World War II-ish and like after, you know, even a little after World War II, there's still some groups, but, you know, we've thought about that like shifting. So like, there's always been this core group of people who we would call white who are like the in-group. And then there's always concerns about the out-groups. So whether those out-groups, um, you know, first it was real concern about like Chinese individuals um, coming to California. And then it becomes concerns about all Asian groups and um, African uh, people of African heritage. Then it becomes, um, you know, and then it's like different European groups, um, Southern and Eastern Europe, Europeans were the out group. And so there, so there's like this shifting view. So there's always a little bit of somewhat racism, somewhat ethnocentrism um, that pushes views. The other aspect too, that often aligns with it is um, an anti-poor view. So within um, American political thought and and English, Anglo political thought and, and sociology, there is this always like view of um, the poor, the undeserving poor and the deserving poor and thinking that migrants, you know, they are undeserving if they're poor because they, you know, came here. Um, and like, we don't want more poor people. And of course, like racism and anti-poor bias overlap a lot because outgroups typically because of discrimination end up being poor. So it ends up being this both anti low-wage individuals, but also anti-ethnic or racial others. In a piece uh, that you wrote in The New Republic in 2017, you talk about the GOP embrace of anti-immigration policies, and particularly looking at the Trump era. And I thought, you know, concerningly show that whereas U.S. business interests uh, used to be sort of more pro-immigrant, that today, quote, most businesses simply don't care about immigration the way they used to. And what this means, you you write, is that the Republican Party has been increasingly free to crack down on immigration without fear of alienating the business community. And we are, you know, of course, seeing this in the headlines with, you know, publicity stunts like, um, you know, sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard and stuff like that. And this was really interesting and and a little depressing to read. Why is the the business community less kind of pro-immigrant now? I guess that's my first question. And related, how do Democrats and Republicans approach this issue differently? So you think back to a hundred years ago or a hundred, you know, around the turn of the 18th or 19th and 20th century. And you think about all those stories about various factories and stuff, and who were the factories staffed by? They were staffed by immigrants for the most part. That was, we know those industries don't exist in the same way that they used to. So like, we don't really have a textile industry in the U.S. any longer. And what we do have is relies on a lot of machinery now. Um, Same thing with um, most manufacturing. I heard a report on Marketplace yesterday, I think it was, or 
or all things considered. I can't remember one of the two. I was listening to the radio. Um, and basically manufacturing jobs, even though they've recovered and even bounced back from the pandemic, they're still way lower than they were in the 1970s. And so where most immigrants came in and worked were for historically were in was in manufacturing. And so as manufacturing jobs have been lost to um, overseas competitions, think about being lost to China, but even more importantly, have been lost to automation and technological improvements, which means we can just make way more today um, than we could in the past with way fewer workers. And so we just don't need as many workers. And the workers we do need need to actually be for manufacturing jobs need to actually be relatively skilled to be able to work with complicated machinery. So, you know, this, the news article I was listening to was talking about this in the status of like uh, uh, U.S. born workers that like you can't just get a high school education necessarily and become a top end manufacturing worker because you actually need more more training than that. And if you think about like the average a migrant who's coming from a developing country probably has less than a high school education. And even if they do have a high school education, it's probably not equal to our high school education. And so they just can't step into those jobs in the same way. So as we've lost the manufacturing, you haven't seen um, the service sector and other sectors step up in the same way to push for more um, uh, immigration um, more, just more immigration in the way that manufacturing must did. And those would be sectors where uh, that that do still depend on foreign workers because you can't outsource hotel support or agriculture or construction because people actually have to be here. Does this mean that voices in favor of um, immigration reform or more liberal immigration policies uh, have lost an important constituency then? Um, yes, exactly. So they don't have the same not only an important constituency, but one that brings a lot of money to the table. So if you think about it, like who has money to lobby Congress and who has a lot of money to like set up organizations and fund political campaigns? Well, it's like rich business people, right? Rich businesses and rich business people fund a lot of campaigns. And so if they're not pushing for it because they don't really see that as a key area for their business. They see issues like tax policy and regulations and things like that to be a much more key issue. Then, you know, who does the, who does Congress then answer to? Well, it's like the average citizen who Congress typically assume are anti-immigrant, whether or not that's actually true. Yeah. Immigration, uh, has certainly been in the headlines this election season. And some of that has been driven by political stunts, like the relocation of migrants by Republican governors to Democratic enclaves. Um, But there have been other things in the news as well. You know, Venezuelan migrants um, have been arriving in large numbers. You know, a lot of Americans, of course, are aware of um, Ukrainian refugees coming to the U.S., um, driven out by Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, And at the same time, many Americans are heading into a winter with a lot of economic uncertainty how big of an issue do you think immigration is going to be in the upcoming midterm elections? Democrats don't want immigration to like be in the news cycle right now. You know, the Democrats want people to focus on um, abortion rights because that will bring out, you know, more Democrats. They want to 
have the election be sort of like a referendum on Trump again, um, or maybe focusing on like specifics of like local races, you know, like, you know, Dr. Oz doesn't even live in Pennsylvania and the puppies and like, you know, all sorts of things or highlighting these bigger national concerns. And um, Republicans do want to focus on immigration but like right now, they're sort of thinking that inflation's an even better um, uh, topic for them to touch talk about because it it affects people's daily lives more. Like you know, we see the like price at the pump and that sort of thing. Um, and and I think actually that like Hurricane Ian, um, DeSantis is so busy with her dealing with Hurricane Ian that he's like not flying migrants around any longer. And also, I think DeSantis realized that like, oh, the the migrant flights make me look like crazy. And like DeSantis wants to be seen as like, I'm like Trump and I support his views, but I'm not as crazy as Trump to get that like more moderate. And he wants media narrative about him to be like, he's the serious Donald Trump, or like, he's the presidential Donald Trump. I want to ask you about how the politics of migration differs among different countries. You wrote a really interesting paper that looks at the impact of inequality on opposition to migration. So does greater inequality lead to more calls or louder calls um, for restrictions of immigration? The logic being that, um, anti-immigration sentiment is often driven by a sense of economic threat, as you mentioned. And you found that the answer depends a lot on what country you're looking at. How are the politics of migration different among different countries? And particularly, how are they different between high-income countries like the U.S. and low- and middle-income countries? So the U.S. and other um, high-income democracies look really similar. Um, We've seen really similar trends um, with increased restrictions on immigration um, and uh, less business support for immigration. So like most notably, um, the UK, it's clear, you know, think about Brexit, where um, you just have this huge anti-immigration coalition vote to leave the, leave the, uh, the EU. Um, and you didn't see, you saw lots of business support on other issues, but not as much about like the immigration issue, whereas the immigration issue was really salient to the leave voters, where it was not as salient uh, to the remain voters. Um, and you see similar sorts of um, things happening in places like Sweden. Sweden used to be kind of like one of the most liberal countries on immigration, especially on refugees. And their new policies basically making Sweden very restrictive for refugees. And it's sort of like the same sort of anti-immigrant politics that you see in the U.S. Now, what's different is when we think about um, more middle-income countries, and a lot of these countries are facing large flows of um, people from forced migration crisis. So what I mean by that is like Turkey, where you have large flows of um, Syrian refugees and others um, Colombia where you've, and Brazil, where you've seen large numbers of Venezuelans fleeing the economic crisis in uh, Venezuela, um, other countries in Eastern Europe that are a little bit more in, middle income that now have large numbers of Ukrainians, 
Um, and there, the politics um, is a little different because those middle income countries are where manufacturing has gone. <laughs> um, and so you do have the fact that like businesses um, typically are actually really like these large flows of refugees and um, other folks from forced displacement crises coming in because they are um, able to get more employees that way. Um, and then you see differences um, and you see heightened inequality pushing anti-immigration sentiment for economic reasons in those countries because um, the immigrants compete a lot more for jobs in those economies. So I'll give you a good example. So Colombia and Venezuela. Colombians and Venezuelans both speak Spanish, right? They're both majority Catholic countries, the dominant racial ethnic group in those countries are people who are mestizo. So some sort of mix between like Spanish heritage and indigenous heritage, um, very culturally similar, all those sorts of things. So when Venezuelans come to Colombia, they can pretty easily compete for like the same kind of job. Whereas that same Venezuelan who's coming to the United States, um, maybe doesn't speak English. And so there's all sorts of jobs that are that happen in the U.S. where we need you to speak English, right? They typically don't have the same levels of education. Um, so even though, say, Venezuelan migrants are pretty highly educated as a group, they don't have as highly, they're not as highly educated as like Americans are on average. And also they come from like a different culture. So the, especially like, again, in the service industry, you know, so much of like what goes on is like having that baseline cultural knowledge, which like you just grow up and you have when you're in a country. And, you know, somebody coming from a different country doesn't necessarily have that knowledge. And so it's harder for most immigrants to come and replace um, an American their job because of the, the needs of the job need a lot more cultural based skills that you can only get after being in America for a, a while. And so even when we have periods of inequality in uh, like wealthy country, immigrants aren't really competing with locals for jobs. And so you're not seeing that same um, anti the labor backlash that you see in low and middle income countries. That's interesting. So in low and middle income countries where the jobs tend to be more low wage and require fewer skills, migrants coming in are potentially seen as a substitute for local jobs, which leads to stronger voices uh, in opposition to immigration. And yet it's totally different um, from the business owner's perspective who who see that immigration as a benefit. That That's really interesting. I want to switch gears to come back to the central focus of this series, which is democracy, um, and ask you about the impact that immigrants have on democracy. Immigrants are are often portrayed as a threat to democracy. Um, but what do we know about the impact that they have um, on democratic governance? Uh, do they strengthen democracy? Do they weaken democracy? What are the impacts in the countries where they settle and the countries that they come from? So these sorts of concerns are are nothing new. And plenty of scholars have done a lot of research about this topic over a long period of time. And it's just not true. And it's not true for two reasons. One is that it's probably the case that for at least some set of migrants who come to democratic countries, they are specifically coming 
to those democratic countries because they want to live in a democracy. They are looking for more freedom than they have at home. And so are greatly supportive of our freedoms. So think about like the Cuban um, migration in Florida, like talk about pro de- pro-democracy folks and like anti-communists. And then the other side is that even people who come just for like economic reasons pretty quickly are like, oh, you know, life in a democracy is kind of better, um, you know, and it might be about things like corruption, not to say for those of us who live in LA, that like <laughs> there's no corruption because <laughs> We got lots of issues yeah. here with, uh, you know, <laughs> how many of our, you know, ex-councilmen and, and things are, you know, under indictment for corruption. Yeah. But, but, you know, and not to say like our police force are, are better or like perfect, but like, you know, at least, you know, when you get pulled over for a parking ticket or you get a traffic ticket or a parking ticket or something, nobody's like shaking you down for a bribe, right? Um And so they can learn about things like that. They can learn about um, the freedoms people have here, the freedom just to like, you know, how many of us say openly, like whoever is in government is an idiot, you know, and just like openly, like, so-and-so is an idiot. Like, why hasn't Kevin DeLeon like resigned yet? That jerk, you know, although maybe we use more colorful language with Kevin DeLeon and these things. Um, And so, you know, we think about those sorts of things um, and so people learn about the benefits of democracy and, and typically just become, you know, pretty pro-democracy, um, although it is the case that like first generation immigrants do typically vote at lower rates, like they don't get brought in and socialized in the system um, in the same way that like the second generation does. By the second generation, people are voting at like the same rates as um, people who are who are longer period of like children of immigrants. Um, but, you know, when they do get brought into the political system, you know, they're as much pro-democracy. Now, you might be saying, well, like, but I see this correlation between like more immigration and more far right parties, right? Or like democratic backsliding. There's a lot of debate in the literature about whether or not immigration, immigrants are just a scapegoat that like is convenient for far right parties or whether the presence of immigrants are leading to more far right parties or greater support for far right parties. So if you remember back to the summer of 2015, where you had huge numbers of Syrians and others leaving Turkey and going to like Greek islands of Lesbos and other the islands, they found that those islands were much more supportive of the far right party Golden Dawn than other places in Greece were. And so that suggests um, that there's more support for far right parties um, in places with more refugees. But then other scholars um, looked at the case of Germany where they settled migrants kind of semi-randomly and they made each city take in a certain amount of like the Syrian migrants and other migrants that were coming at, at the same time in 2015. And they found no correlation between, or even a negative correlation between where immigrants were settled and support for like the alternative for uh, Germany, um, the AFD, that's like the far right party. And this main support for the far right party in um, Germany is in the Eastern, the former communist Eastern Germany area, minus Berlin, 
where there aren't a lot of immigrants. And so the relationship between immigration and the rise of the far right is not clear. Last question. What are you most worried about in the migration politics space looking out to the next year? And what are you most encouraged by? Well, well, actually, you know, I was most saddened by this recent announcement by the Swedes that they were going to radically cut back on um, their refugee resettlement program and um, and support for asylum seekers. Just in general, thinking about the huge need for resettlement services and a huge need to help people who are fleeing all sorts of crises. You know, the Syrian civil war is still going on. The Venezuelan economy is still terrible. There's still huge amounts of gang violence in Central America. The war in Ukraine, like there's huge numbers of instability and wars that are still going on throughout Africa, like the Sub-Saharan African context. The Rohingya crisis is still going on in Myanmar. Like we just have a huge need for humanitarian um, assistance and humanitarian resettlement. And the fact that one of the leaders on this who maybe could have pushed the rest of the EU to be a little bit more open on this is now backing away too. It's like really depressing. What am I most hopeful by? Um, I am most hopeful about um, more grassroots ways of thinking about migration and migrant rights here in the United States. So um, I will just plug that some of my colleagues at UCLA are pushing this initiative that uh, the UC system can actually hire undocumented immigrants and that the federal government doesn't have the right to tell states whether or not they can hire undocumented immigrants. And, you know, I think we should try it. I think it'll get bound up in the courts. Um, But I think it's an interesting, interesting way thing to try. Um, And if we can get it to go through, um, it would be a real lifeline for a lot of our students who are undocumented, who are not DACA students. Um, I've had plenty of students who graduated that, you know, they're looking at like jobs under the table. Like here they got this like great UC education and they can't do anything with it. And that that's really disappointing. And so like the fact that like we could hire those people both as research assistants or TAs, but also think about hiring them after they're done. And, um, you know, using that great talent that we're producing. Um, so initiatives like that and more grassroots organizing um, is what gets me most excited. Maggie Peters, thank you for being with us on Talking Policy. It is great to talk with you. I could talk with you much longer. We'll save more questions for next time. All right. Great. Great to talk to you. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week.